we looked at a text last week. We've been going through Matthew's Gospel, Matthew uh, chapter 16. And uh, let me read the text, 1 through 3. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. And you know when the Pharisees and Sadducees show up, uh, they're trying to trap Jesus, right? So the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Right? We've heard you do all these miracles. Uh, we're here to judge you on whether your miracles are spectacular enough, and then we'll determine whether you're a man of God or not. Right? He answered them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but... You cannot interpret the signs of the times. You can predict the weather by looking at the signs, but you guys are blind spiritually. You should have been tuned in to what's going on in the world today and know that we are now in a special time, Jesus, in essence, saying. The time when the Messiah shows up. You've missed it because of your spiritual dullness. Now you go, well, what should they have been aware of? Now last week we looked actually at five things that they should have been aware of. Uh, we, we looked at Daniel chapter 2, an Old Testament book where God reveals to Daniel that he is in the first of four major world empires that will come. He was in the Babylonian Empire. Then there was to follow three more, the Medo-Persian Empire, the uh, Greek Empire with Alexander the Great, and then that would be followed by a fourth empire, a cruel uh, empire, the Roman Empire. And during that fourth empire is when God was going to do something spectacular. They knew they were in that fourth empire, yet they were blind. Then in Daniel chapter 9, uh, Daniel prays to God for wisdom, and, he, and God sends Gabriel uh, the angel, and Gabriel says, um, I'm going to give you a 490-year timeline, starting with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And scholars kind of debate, is it this date or is it that date? Wherever you start, you count about 500 years into the future, and where do you end up? Right at the time of Christ. So the Old Testament scholars should have known that they were in the Roman Empire right around this 490-year period, yet they missed it. Then uh, God, in the book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, uh, God says, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, I will send Elijah, the prophet. Well, who shows up? John the Baptist. Jesus calls him the Elijah who was to come. Everybody knew John the Baptist was a prophet. John pointed to Jesus and said, don't follow me, follow him. The Pharisees and Sadducees refused to follow John the Baptist and the person he pointed to. Then Jesus points out that in the book of Isaiah, there's a bunch of miracles that the Messiah is going to do. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to uh, heal the blind. He's going to... Uh, deaf people are going to hear... And Jesus performs all these miracles, and they ignore the miracles. And then the final sign is a true prophet of God is not afraid to call out hypocritical false religion. And Jesus did that with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
And rather than them repenting, they killed him. Right? So they ignored the signs of his times. Now, here's what I want to do today and, and possibly in days to come. I want to ask, would we be guilty of the same blindness today? Would Jesus say to you, hey, you can predict the weather. You can try to predict the economy. You can uh, try to predict various things in the world. But are you able to read the signs of the times to find out how we are spiritually today? To find out how close we are to the end. Now, I realize Jesus says nobody knows the day or the hour of his return. Absolutely true. But are there not general signs that point to a soon return? Not a specific day, not a specific hour, but wouldn't he expect us to be at least asking the question, what are the general signs that we should be looking for? Now, here's what I want to do today. Um, Just as the first two that we looked at last week dealt with major world empires, things going on globally, Um, I want to zero in on one particular sign. And again, I need you to to be tuned in today. I need you to be thinking. For some of you, you've never heard this. Others, you follow this uh, in in detail. Um, But we're going to get into some specific geopolitical issues today. Okay? Mark Twain asked a question. He said, all things are mortal. In other words, all things die, but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? How is it that the Israelites have survived over the years? And what we're going to see is that Israel's survival, their statehood, their eventual supremacy, and their ultimate salvation are all signs that are spoken of in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. We're going to see some interesting things that have happened in our our day and age that that point to Israel uh, as a fulfilled or fulfilling sign of the end times. All right, so first of all, let's talk about the survival of Israel. Now, have you ever met a Hittite or an Amalekite or a Gibeonite? Anybody ever met a... Uh, no, they've all, they've all died, right? How about a Philistine? Some of you have dated Philistines, but um, <laughs> Philistine is... A, <laughs> A term for, uh, you know, uh, ogre, right? Now, these, these are all people who are mentioned in the Bible. They've lived in uh, the land of Palestine, right? But they've all died out. There's a small people group on the planet called Jews who have not only survived, but they seem to thrive, right? Tyrants have tried to exterminate them. In the Old Testament, remember in the book of Esther, Haman tries to exterminate the race of Jews. In modern times, a guy named Hitler tried to exterminate the Jews. 
They have been expelled from their homeland twice. Once when ancient Babylon came in and destroyed them. And then in 70 AD, they were expelled from the land of Israel. And for 2,000 years, they've wandered the planet. But today, they're back in the land of Israel. From the moment they became a modern-day state in 1948, they have been in a constant state of war. Yet they continue to survive. What's the answer to Twain's question? What's the secret of their immortality? It's got to be that God is preserving them. There's no other explanation. Now, let's talk theology for a second. Okay, this will be painless. Right? There are two major theological views when it comes to trying to understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right? The, the relationship between Israel as a people, and the church as a people. How, do we, uh, how, how does Israel and the church fit together? Well, there's, uh, there's a, a theology called dispensationalism. Right? You go, what, what is that? I've heard that term. What is the essence of dispensationalism? Here's the essence of dispensationalism. Dispensationalists keep Israel and the church as two distinct groups. Right? God is now drawing people into the church to Christ, and he is working with the church now as, uh, as the people of God. Has he forgotten about Israel? No. Uh, dispensationalists would say there is a future day for Israel. Okay? But the main thing is Israel's not the church, and there's a future day for Israel. Covenant theology is the, uh, the other view. Covenant theology sees the church as becoming Israel. Not ethnic Israel, but spiritual Israel. So when you read the Old Testament, you can say, well, those promises and those things written to Israel, in essence, now can be applied to the church. The church and Israel are not distinct. They've merged. Okay? Now, some covenant theologians, though, even though they would say the church has, has become Israel, would also say there's still a future for ethnic Israel. Right? So, all dispensationalists see Israel as distinct from the church, and Israel has a significant future. Right? All covenant theologians see the church as spiritual Israel, but some of them still see a distinct future for ethnic Israel. You go, why is that important? It's not as easy as if you're one, you believe Israel's done with. If you're the other, you believe there's a future for Israel. But you do need to know that there are some who believe God was done with Israel. All he's going to do is work with the church. All right? um, I, don't, I don't believe that. I believe that in both the Old and the New Testament, there are promises that there is a future for the people of Israel. Now, let me say right from the beginning, whatever spiritual future there is for Israel, they need to come to Christ. They don't have a separate salvation plan. Okay? They will come to Christ in their future. But here's the question. 
is there a clear promise that God will preserve the Jewish people? Well, let's go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11, verse 13. Paul says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. So I, Paul, a Jewish apostle, I'm writing to the Gentile Christians in Rome. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So Jesus came, the majority of Jewish people rejected him. The apostles went on, some Jews believed. But now Paul says, I'm going off and we're including the Gentiles into the church. And I hope that the Jews who are watching, when they see all these Gentiles coming to the true God, will become jealous and also want to get in on it, is what he's saying. All right? Then he says this, For if their rejection, if the Jews' rejection, means the reconciliation of the world, the reconciliation of Gentiles, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? I see this. What will their acceptance mean? I see this as saying there's a future day of acceptance. And it's tied close to the end where there will be a general resurrection of life from the dead. In other words, um, they, they rejected Christ and they have been rejected so the Gentiles can come in. And if their rejection meant the world being reconciled, what's it going to mean in the end when they are accepted? Now, Paul goes on to give an illustration dealing with uh, an olive tree. All right? he, he basically says the people of God can be represented as an olive tree. He says, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in. Again, this is a picture of an olive uh, branch. The way you graft is you slice into the, the bark, and then you whittle down a branch from another tree, and you stick it in there, then you wrap it with, with tape or wrap it with uh, cloth, and hopefully that will, will fuse and start to grow. So he says, God started with his people Israel. In fact, let me read it, verse 24. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree. If you Gentiles were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature, so you're a wild olive branch, you Gentiles, and you were grafted into Israel, okay, into God's people. He broke them off for their disbelief, but now he's grafted you in. He says... Uh, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? If you, Gentiles, were broken off from wild olive trees and grafted into the people of God... How much more is he able to do that with the natural branches, the Jews? Okay? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. All right? They, they're blinded to Christ. Until 
Remember that word until, we're going to see it again. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So they are blinded, they have been hardened. The Gentiles are being grafted in until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Then what will happen? Verse 26, and in this way all Israel will be saved. In the end, a massive revival amongst Jews will take place and they will come to faith in Christ. Now, you go, how does that other view interpret this? Well, the view that says God's done with Israel, they say God, or Paul has been using Israel, he's been talking about ethnic Israel, ethnic Israel, ethnic Israel, but then in verse 26 he switches the meaning. Israel here doesn't mean ethnic Israel. He says it means just the church. And in this way, all the church, all Israel will be saved. In other words, their view is this. Here's the, the, the plant, it's, it's Israel, God breaks off the natural branches, grafts in the Jews, and then, or the Gentiles, I should say, and then when all the Gentiles have grown, all Israel, the whole church has been saved. The problem with that is you have to switch the meaning of the word Israel. He's using the word Israel to mean ethnic Israel throughout the whole chapter, and then you have to give it a, a, a symbolic meaning in verse 26. I think it's saying that all Israel will be saved in the end times. Now, we'll back that up with some Old Testament verses also. But uh, here is the conclusion uh, in Romans 11, 11, 28, and 29. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, God's sovereign purposes and working behind the scenes in election, as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Remember, God made these promises to Abraham and the forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, when God makes a promise to the people of Israel, they can have unbelief and they can reject Christ and they can be scattered throughout the nations. But if God has called them, you cannot reverse that. And in the end, it will all come together and you will see a multitude of Jews come to believe in Christ in the end. Okay, So... um, You could look at this in two ways. One, I'm arguing that God will continue the survival of the Jews because of these promises. Or you can look at it the opposite way. How do you explain the survival of the Jews? Because God has promised to do it. So first we look at the survival of the people of Israel. Second, let's take a look at the statehood of the people of Israel. Now, in um, Luke chapter 21, that's the Olivet Discourse, the week Jesus is going to be crucified, he is sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking at the temple. Now, this is, modern, this is the modern-day Wailing Wall. This is not the temple. This is actually uh, an Islamic mosque that um, the Muslims have built on top of the Temple Mount. But the... Uh, Mount of Olives is over here. Jesus is sitting there, and he and his disciples are looking at what used to be this beautiful temple that uh, was the Jewish temple. And they're commenting on how beautiful it is. And then Jesus says, every stone's going to be torn down. And he's talking about 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed 
the temple. A million Jews were either uh, killed or uh, made slaves. All right. So in Luke 21, 24, Jesus says this. They, the Israelites, will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Now, if the Bible wanted to make it clear that God's done with the Jews, there would be a period right there and that would be it. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Done. But look what it says. There's that word until again. Right? Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, what that tells us is Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles as it has been for 2,000 years. But a sign that you're near the end is when Jerusalem is in the hands, not of the Gentiles, but of the Jews. 70 AD, Jerusalem is destroyed, million Jews killed and enslaved, scattered all over the face of the earth for 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, the Jews would celebrate Passover, and they would end it by saying, next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem. World War II happens. Hitler kills six million Jews. The world says they should have their homeland back. The land of Israel is under British sovereignty. And they say you can go back to Israel. Jews start heading back to Israel. In 1948, Israel declares itself to be a nation, a state. Now, dropping a bunch of Jewish people into the land of Israel is like dropping a bag of kitties in a dog pound, right? Because it's surrounded by Arab nations. So Israel announces we are now a state, and six Arab nations attack them. They're, they're, they're goners, right? No, when the dust clears, Israel wins the war. And they have been in this, this state of tension over there uh, ever since. In, now, when they, were, when they went back to the land in 1948, they did not have Jerusalem. In 1967, that's the Six-Day War, again, they're attacked by the surrounding Arab nations. And when the dust clears after six days, they've expanded their territory. They win again. And now they possess Jerusalem, 1967. How many of you were alive in 1967? Okay. I was five. I remember it well. No, I don't. Okay. Now, question. Is Luke 21, 24 fulfilled? Is, is Jerusalem in the hand of the Jews? Some would say yes, some would say no, because of all the international pressure, and you know, the Israel and Jerusalem is divided up, and there's the Arab quarter, and there's the, the Jewish quarter, uh, so they don't have full control over it, and there's this, 
this Islamic mosque on top of the Temple Mount. Um, but I tell you what, if, if they're not in control of Jerusalem, uh, if, if Luke 21 is not fulfilled yet, we are closer now than we have been in the last 2,000 years. Okay? So, we've talked about their survival. We've talked about their statehood. Now, let's talk about their uh, supremacy. Oh, by the way, here is, uh, here is the original promise that God gave to Abraham. Genesis 17.8. God says, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So the question, you know, who, if the Palestinian and the Israeli conflict, who owns the land? Well, I do believe God gave Abraham a promise that the Jews would possess the land. Now, this does not mean that whatever move the Jews make is right. I think we have to, to uh, you know, hold them accountable for, for whatever moves they make to be uh, godly and righteous. Okay? But I do believe that this was an everlasting possession. All right? So we've seen the survival of Israel, the statehood of Israel. Now, the supremacy of Israel. I kind of picture the Bourne, you know, the Bourne movie series where there's the Bourne identity where Jason Bourne is floating in the, in the ocean and they pull him out and he, does, he can't remember who he is. And he finds out that he was a spy Uh, an assassin working for the United States, but he can't get it all clear. And then in the next movie, he goes from being the underdog, being pursued, to now rising to the top, the born supremacy. Well, Israel has been scattered all over the face of the earth. Now they're back in the land, and there is a day of supremacy yet to come. Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a very interesting passage in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's an Old Testament prophet. He wrote um, right around the time that the Jews were brought into exile into Babylon. Right? And in Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel 38 talks about a, a world war that's going to come against Israel. Right? Now, this has not happened in the history of Israel yet. So this has to be future. Now, here's here's what it says. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog. Now, Gog uh, is the name of some leader of this coalition of nations that's going to come against Israel. Um, Some people would say it's the Antichrist, the end time Antichrist. Um, But whoever it is, it's the leader of this coalition. So, uh, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tabal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tabal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out, and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Togamoth, from the uttermost parts of the north, with all his hordes. Many people are with you. 
after many days you will be mustered. In the latter years you will go against the land that is restored from war. Now, um, so, so what you need to understand is that there is a prophecy that all these weird named countries are going to come against little old Israel. Now, we can identify who they are. Put is Libya. Cush is Sudan in, in Africa. Persia is Iran. Now, you know Iran's going to be in on this. By the way, um, what's going on in Iran today? This is Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Okay. Uh, Joel Rosenberg, some of you are familiar with Joel Rosenberg. He is a Jewish Christian. He's written a bunch of novels and other books dealing with what's going on in the Middle East. He's got a book called Epicenter. Right? And um, he's got a blog, and he's got, he's, he, he is like the man dealing with uh, what's going on in the Middle East. Here's what Rosenberg says about Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is not a world leader worthy of the world stage. He is the evil leader of a, Sh- a Shia Islamic death cult. He is building nuclear weapons. He is calling for the end of the world and the arrival of the 12th Imam. That's in, in Islamic theology, the 12th Imam will appear. And uh, that's their savior. And in our theology, that would be the Antichrist. So their Antichrist is their savior and so forth. Okay. But uh, he's hoping that he will be instrumental in the 12th Imam showing up. He aspires to be a mass murderer beyond the scale of Adolf Hitler. He deserves to be in a prison or an insane asylum. So, Joel Rosenberg, not a big fan of Ahmadinejad. Okay. Now, um, so, so everybody agrees that Libya, Sudan, and Iran will be part of this invasion. Now, where it gets a little controversial are these five other nations. Gomer, Togamah, Magog, Meshach, and Tabal. Now, um, Joel Rosenberg believes that um, these nations, or at least some of them, are referring to Russia. Okay? Um, because Moscow would be either Meshach or Magog. Um, so he, he believes that Russia is going to be behind this. Now, let me show you another book. This is Michael Rodelnik's book. Who's Michael Rodelnik? He is uh, a professor at Moody Bible Institute. He is Jewish. He is a Christian. His parents survived the Holocaust. He is a Hebrew scholar. He is smarter than Joel Rosenberg, so I'm going with him. All right? Um, what does Dr. Rodelnik say? Dr. Rodelnik says this. Some interpreters, particularly during the period of the Cold War, inaccurately identified Israel's attackers as Russia. This was based primarily on the similarity uh, of, sound, of sound in the words of Rosh to Russia, Meshach to Moscow, Tobol to Tobolsk. This approach seems to be taking its interpretation more from Cold War headlines than the biblical text. So who does he identify them on, as? Well, he would say Magog and Gomer are modern-day Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, and Meshach and Tubal and uh, Togarma are eastern Turkey. In other words, if you go north of Israel, you've got 
this conglomeration of, of countries here, a bunch of them in eastern Turkey, others former republics of the Soviet Union. But now, here's what I want you to see. What do every one of these countries have in common? What do you think? Yeah, they're Islamic. They're all Islamic. Now does it make sense why 3,000 years ago Ezekiel would name these names? Everybody said, what? why would they all gather together against Israel? They have a common hatred of this little, little speck of land because they're all Islamic. Now, let me show you something really interesting. Okay, Are you with me so far? All right. Um, Michael Radelnik writes this. Some would object about Turkey. Some would object that although Turkey is predominantly Muslim by religion, it's an unlikely invader of Israel. The government is secular, as are most of the people. Furthermore, Israel and Turkey have a strong alliance, even sharing joint military exercises. So, so he says, you know, I, this is what my biblical study has concluded, that, that these, these are the, the countries, but Turkey is Israel-friendly. Right? Now, he wrote this book in 2007. And he says, yet biblical prophecy foretells that Turkey will participate in an Islamic invasion. So he says, I'm going with the Bible over the news. 2007. Do you know what's happened between Israel and Turkey over the last few years? Okay. Let me just, uh, I, I googled Israel-Turkey relations and uh, Wikipedia chronicles this. In early 2006, Israeli Foreign Ministry described its relations with Turkey as perfect. That's 2006. After Hamas, a Hamas leader paid an official visit to Turkey, okay, so that's uh, the Hamas group in Israel persecuting the Jews, went and visited the, the Turkish uh, government. Relations entered a cooling down process. Next, the Turkish government's con- condemnation of the 2008-2009 Israeli-Gaza conflict, strained relations between the two countries. Things are getting worse. On October 11, 2009, a military aerial exercise was to consist of Turkey, Israel, and the United States and Italy. However, Turkey barred Israel from the military exercise. We don't, we don't want to do this with you. In October 2009, Netanyahu, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, objected to Turkey as a mediator, stating Turkey cannot be an honest broker between Syria and Israel. Obviously, Syria and Israel have tensions. Turkey was going to be a mediator. Now, we don't want that. Now, do you know what's going to happen in Chicago in May? A NATO summit. Right, So um, this is off of this week's news. Um, well, uh, ac- actually, let me, let me hold, hold that. Okay, this is, this is not even, even the bad part yet. This uh, is a map 
of Israel. Okay? The, the Israelis gave the Gaza Strip to the Palestinians. Okay? They lobbed bombs into Israel on a regular basis. Thousands of bombs. Okay? Um, in May of 2000, May 31st, 2010, do you know where we were? We were in Israel. And we were supposed to go up on the Temple Mount. But our tour guide said, no, there's conflict, it's not safe, you can't go up there. Well, what happened was there was a flotilla, six boats tied together in the Mediterranean Sea, and they were headed toward Gaza uh, to bring relief supplies. And the Israelis said, stop. And they said, no, it's just relief supply. They go, how do we know there aren't rockets on that, that boat? So the Israelis boarded the ship, and they killed nine people. Nine of them were Turkish. Okay? So um, since then, the Israeli-Turkey relationship has really soured. Um, that's one of the boats. This is this week's newspaper. Turkey says Israel not welcome at NATO summit. Monday, April 23rd, uh, Reuters. Turkey has refused to allow Israel to take part in a NATO summit next month because the Jewish state has not apologized for the 2010 killing of Turkish activists in a raid on a ship uh, taking aid to Palestinians, a Turkish official said on Monday. Tension between Turkey and Israel, right? I mean, this is, this is fresh, right out of the news, okay? Now, um, you go, I thought that this point was the, like the born supremacy. Israel's going to be like the supreme one. Well, let's go back to the Ezekiel prophecy. You've got all these nations marching on Israel, going to destroy them. How does the war end? Ezekiel thirty-eight eighteen. But on that day the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. By the way, in the book of Revelation, whether it's this earthquake or another one, a huge sign of the end times is a, a thunderous earthquake. Maybe that's this. Okay. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many people who are with him, torrential rain and, and hailstone, uh, hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Israel wins. Because of their nuclear power, no, because of God who's watching out for them, right? 
So we've seen their survival. We've seen their statehood. We've seen their supremacy. One missing thing. What about their salvation? Haven't they rejected Christ? Yeah. Well, God will not only preserve them, but in the end, he will save them. Where do we see that? Zechariah, another Old Testament prophet. Zechariah 12. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. So, you know, imagine reading this in the year, you know, 1207. You go, ah, Jerusalem, it's just rotting place on the planet. But God says, I'm going to make it the center of world attention. And everybody who tries to touch it is going to get burned. Does that describe today? Now, here comes the the good part, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, look on who? On him whom they have pierced. This is an Old Testament prophecy and God is referring to himself as him whom they have pierced. Oh, the Jews don't, the, Jew, the Old Testament doesn't talk about Jesus. Really? They will look upon him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. No, the Jews don't get a free pass because they're ethnic Jews. They must come to Christ for salvation the way everybody else must be saved. But here's a promise that in all this turmoil, God will preserve them and then they will look upon him whom they have pierced. Whether that refers to his actual second coming or if it's referring to just understanding that they have rejected their Messiah in the end. They will get it. They will get the gospel. Now, let me just close by reminding you, what is the gospel? Gospel is this. We're all sinners. We, like the Jews, have rebelled against God. We've sinned against him. We've basically said, what is sin? Sin is saying, God, I know you exist, and you have your rules and your standards, but thank you very much. I'll run life myself. That's sin. And that is deserving of his wrath. But God in his love looks down on us rebels and he says, I am going to save you. I will pay your price. A just God must have sin paid for. But we can't pay the price ourselves. So he is pierced for our transgressions. Jesus dies on the cross in our place. And all who will turn to him Turn from our self-sufficiency, turn from our arrogance, turn from our sin, and turn to Christ and trust in him, we'll be saved. What's a Christian? 
one who has turned from trusting in himself and turned from his sin and turned to Christ, and now I'm trusting in him, and his death pays for my sin. His righteousness is what makes me righteous before God. That's the good news of the gospel. You go, wow, what do I have to do to get that? Do I have to sign up for a class? Do I have to jump through a bunch of hoops? You trust him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Have you believed in Christ? Have you opened your heart and trusted him as your only Savior?